My name is Warda Abdullahi and I was born in Saudi Arabia. Warda Abdullahi was born a refugee in the late 90s. I have lived in many different places throughout Africa where I faced many obstacles such as loss of education, living through a drought, losing my mother, but after everything I still succeeded. Warda's parents are Somali, but their ancestral land is in Ethiopia where they lived until war forced them to flee. They ended up in Saudi Arabia, undocumented, constantly at risk of deportation. That is where they got married and had Warda. My father got deported uh, multiple times. And um, the fourth time, it was right after I was born. He came back and then he tells my mom, you know, this cannot continue. It's not safe for all of us. Uh, how about I send you and Warda to Ethiopia? The plan was for him to join them once he saved enough money. But Warda's mother did not want to leave without him and resisted right up until the last minute. When the departure finally came, it was all such a rush. She forgot to bring Warda's birth certificate and ID, a mistake that still haunts the family. Once we got to Ethiopia, um, I got very sick. And the hospitals in Ethiopia would not accept me. They said, I, um, I, my mother has to bring some sort of papers. If you have no papers, we cannot do anything for you. My mom, she couldn't bear and just watch me getting worse each day. Warda's mother knew the hospitals in Saudi Arabia would treat her sick baby. So she made the desperate decision to sneak back into the country she had just left. That meant taking a smuggler's boat across the Red Sea. Warda was eight months old. An uncle agreed to go with them. The boat was, you know, overcrowded. It was so many people. And it sank in the middle of the sea. Most of the people uh, died right there because they didn't know how to swim, including my mother. Luckily, Warda's uncle could dog paddle a little. And he managed to find her miraculously, just bobbing in the water. I don't know how it happened, but, you know, my mother wrapped me on a little blanket while we were boarding. So the blanket she wrapped me around was just floating on top of the water. I not even water, like, got into my face or anything. I was just floating on top of the sea. And my uncle got hold of me. By the time he got to my mom, it was too late. She was already dead. The blanket that my mother wrapped around me is what saved me. It was, you know, a miracle. It was, you know, meant for me to be talking to you today. I live in Minnesota now. I graduated from St. Catherine University with a bachelor's degree in public health, while I also wrote my book called Warte. I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, stories of becoming a refugee, resettling in the United States, and building a new life. The UN Refugee Agency says one out of every 95 people on Earth has fled their home because of conflict or persecution. Half of the world's refugees are children a tiny fraction will come to America. Most will be assigned to resettle in a city where they know not a single soul. How well and how quickly they manage to thrive depends on how we welcome them into our communities. We can do more. Two themes stand out in Warda Abdullahi's story. Miracles and mentors. The blanket that kept her afloat when the boat capsized at sea was the first. But it would take many more of both for her to become the 25-year-old college graduate she is today with a published memoir and plans for medical school. I was just, you know, a shepherd girl looking after cows and goats and sheep. <laughs> after her mother died at sea, Warda's uncle took her to her grandparents' farm in Ethiopia. Warda's father came from Saudi Arabia to get her. But in the late 90s, Somali men were being targeted in Ethiopia and it wasn't safe for him to stay. So he left baby Warda with his parents and fled to South Africa on the opposite end of the continent. There, he was again undocumented, 
which meant he couldn't fly back to visit his daughter. So my grandparents took care of me until I was 10. I called my grandfather my father, and I didn't know my dad actually existed. Like, you know, my, the only father I knew was my grandfather. Meanwhile, Warda's father was building a new life in South Africa. He had a successful business. He remarried and had more kids. And around the time Warda turned 10, he started having nightmares. Every single night. And the nightmares consisted of just me, you know, getting married young and having no education. And that scared him. Education had meant everything to Warda's father growing up. As a teenager, he'd left the family farm in Ethiopia on his own to attend high school. Then he worked for years to save money for college, but his father took that money and spent it on supplies for the family during a drought. Warda's father vowed it would be different for his children. So he tells my grandfather that he wants to bring me to South Africa so that I can get education. It was end of uh, 2008. And it was 4,000 miles from her grandfather's farm in Ethiopia to Port Elizabeth, South Africa, where her father lived. 4,000 miles. Warda, who was 10, was still undocumented, so she couldn't just take a plane. Instead, she traveled the length of Africa with a series of relatives and family friends, on foot, by car, in a bus that crashed when the driver fell asleep. Ah, oh, that, that was... The most terrifying thing throughout my journey. They'd been on the bus for about five hours. Warda had drifted off. And I wake up, you know, all this loud noises going on and everybody crying. Everybody was looking for their family member. And I see blood everywhere, people laying on the floor in the bus. I, I honestly believe that God was just looking out for me as I had no uh, family member or any friends to take the journey with. When she finally reached South Africa, she had to sneak across the border. We have to hide in the bushes. It it was terrifying for a 10-year-old with no family member uh, with her. I was just walking with random strangers that I never met before. So it, it was terrifying. But looking back, I mean... Everything worked out for the best. In South Africa, her father struggled to find a school that would accept Warda, who had never been to any school, had no transcripts, couldn't read or write, only spoke Somali. They would say, oh, uh, we are sorry, but we can't accept her. Like, how are we supposed to teach her? She doesn't understand English. At the end, there was this one school that, you know, accepted me. They put me into sixth grade because of my age. And I remember the teacher asking me, what's your name? And I had no idea what she was saying. The next day, they put Warda in a second grade class with much younger kids. It was the same thing, though. Like, you know, I had no clue what they were saying, but the teachers were very sweet. They, you know, helping me before school starts and even after school. And up till today, I really appreciate the support they gave me. Without them, you know, I wouldn't be here today. A similar thing would play out four years later when anti-immigrant violence forced Warda's family to flee South Africa. This time they were granted asylum in America. With no relatives already in the United States, the State Department sent them to Grand Rapids, Michigan. We arrived November 6, 2013. And we remember the first time it snowed, we were just testing the snow. (laughs) And we thought that the the snow would taste like sugar. We assumed it would. (laughs) Again, Warda found herself enrolled in an unfamiliar school, this time a large public high school. She was a 16-year-old freshman still mastering English. The schools were big, and I was the only first uh, Muslim uh, student wearing a hijab. And everybody was just staring at me weirdly. And it was hard, honestly. I remember just telling my dad, I cannot keep up. It's, 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 you know, very hard. And I remember staying up, like, till one o'clock, trying to do assignments. Mm. But um, he's like, you know, with every darkness, there's lights at the end of it. So just, just keep trying and ask for help. That's one thing that he always encouraged me to do. Um, If you don't understand something, there's somebody else that understands it and able to help you. So my second semester, you know, I went to join clubs and uh, going to tutoring. I asked my teachers for help whenever they were able to help me. And 
From there, my grades improved. Again, Warda's teachers went out of their way to support her. Then she found a mentor. My name is Mackenzie Wellman, and I'm Warda's mentor from high school. I kind of reached that point in my adulthood where I wanted to give back to the community. Um, and I found this, this mentor-mentee kind of relationship through the Rotary Club. When I met her, you know, she started shooking my hand and her handshake was like very strong. And I was like, wow, amazing. Um, I, I didn't know how this would turn out, but um, meeting Mackenzie was one of the best things that happened to me. I was there to help guide her in her coursework to make sure that she was on schedule to graduate. Early on, Mackenzie learned that Warda hoped to become a doctor, but she was already so much older than the typical high school student. So together, they made a plan to get Warda to graduation before she turned 21. There was definitely moments where I'd go home and be like, what is this girl going to do? That's a lot to overcome. The daily grind, I think, was the hardest to watch her because she showed up every day and took on the classes and she did a lot of the solving in terms of credits uh, for high school and all of that on the front end. And so I would go home and I would fret. And then when I come back a week later, she already had been solving things. Uh, we were a pretty good team. As graduation approached, Mackenzie and Warda started spending Saturdays working on college applications and applying for scholarships. Mackenzie also taught Warda how to drive. That got a little hairy. And there are so many times I almost, you know, run into her <laughs> um, and walls. And she went through a lot with me, but I am so thankful of all the things that she has taught me. Warda says the biggest lesson she learned from Mackenzie was how to be independent and advocate for herself. Like the time Warda's high school adopted a dress code requiring students wear pants and short sleeves. That was more revealing attire than Warda was comfortable with. So Mackenzie helped her get an exception to keep wearing her traditional clothes and head covering. That was a big moment for Warda when she realized that if you stand up for yourself um, with who you are, and what culture you came from, what religion you uh, believe in, and and you're not hurting anybody, then you can have confidence to move forward in this world with who you are. Warda says her father was particularly pleased with Mackenzie's influence. As a 27-year-old, college-educated woman with a successful business career and an understanding of how to succeed in America. He always told me, you know, She is the only role model you have right now, and you should always look up to her and ask her for guidance because I would love to help you through every situation you are in, but I have no experience or the knowledge. Um, So he he was really happy and thankful that I have met Mackenzie, and they became very close. Mm -hmm. I call him Abo. (laughs) (laughs) You call him Abo? Was that father? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yes. And just shy of her 21st birthday, Warda became the first person in her family to graduate from high school. That was emotional. Warda had like a tribe that showed up that day to support her from high school. And um, it was very fulfilling to watch her complete one tap, like one like big step of her journey and move on to the other and have everything sort of organized. And she was going to go live in Minnesota, and she was in love, you know, with her future husband. Um, So it was just like this big, beautiful, like, ending that was really a beginning. Warda was headed to a private liberal arts college in Minnesota, where her family had relocated. She'd won enough scholarships to cover the entire expense. In 2020, she graduated with her bachelor's degree in public health and plans to go to medical school. Her new memoir is called Warda. My journey from the Horn of Africa to a college education. You know, I want to share my story because I want people to know that anything is possible. You know, I was once a shepherd girl, just, you know, being in the farm and having no uh, sort of education. And look at me today, not to brag or anything like that, but it's possible for you to achieve your dreams and goals and 
be who you want to be and just be amazing. Warda is amazing, and she's lucky to have found the support she needed to succeed in school. Refugees who arrive in the U.S. as teenagers, like Warda did, can easily slip through the cracks of the school system. He looked up at me and said, Coach, I can't read. He was uh, 12 at the time, and he had been in the public school system for three years. And I asked myself, if this was my kid, what would I do? Luma Mufla started her own school for refugee kids. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Luma Mufla's life work on behalf of refugee children began with a wrong turn. She was living on the outskirts of Atlanta at the time and stopped for groceries after work. And on the way back from that grocery store, I missed my turn. Ended up driving through um, a neighborhood that was only five miles from where I lived, but was uh, so unfamiliar Yep, very familiar. There's a mosque, then a Buddhist temple, a lot of women wearing hijab. Uh, There's a group of kids outside uh, playing soccer. They were playing with a raggedy soccer ball and rocks set up as goals. They reminded me of home, uh, the way I grew up playing soccer in the streets of Jordan with my brothers and cousins and neighbors. And um, I'd been coaching club soccer at the time. Um, I had a soccer ball in the back of my car, uh, grabbed it, got out of my car. Kids rushed me. They wanted the ball. I wanted to play, and so we haggled. They um, got the ball, and I got to play. The kids were from Afghanistan, Liberia, and South Sudan, all middle school-aged, all refugees. A memory from her childhood came rushing back to Mufla. She was born in Jordan, but her mother and grandparents were refugees from Syria who fled the first Assad regime in the 1960s. Growing up, we were... uh, told to never forget where we came from. Um, My grandmother, uh, fiercely Syrian, grateful for the country that took her in and gave her a new start, um, but wanted to always make sure we never forgot who we were. And at a very young age, um, she took me to a Palestinian refugee camp on the outskirts of Amman. I think I was eight at the time. When we got there, I was uh, scared, uncomfortable, unsure. Um, The environment to me was scary. It was very uh, densely populated, chaos, a lot of poverty in a way I hadn't seen before. I just kind of like held on to her her skirt um, and she would go usually visit with some of the women and and moms in in the camp. And so she told me, you know, why don't you go play with the kids? And I was like, no, 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 they're not like me. I want to stay with you. Um, You know, she got down firmly. to my level and said, um, you need to go play with them and uh, don't come back until you have. I ended up joining a soccer game on this like barren field and found out what I had in common with people that I thought were very, very different than me or were less than me. After I was done, you know, went to her and we're getting ready to leave. And I'm like kind of boasting. I was like, yeah, like I played with them. They're such great soccer players. And then I said, haram them, um, which means poor them in Arabic. But Mufla's grandmother immediately turned that expression of pity around with a different use of the same Arabic word, haram. And said haram on us, that we were sinning, that we shouldn't be treating people this way and having them live in these conditions. And then she said something that I think has uh, stuck with me and been kind of like my North Star. She said, don't feel sorry for them, believe in them. Luma Mufla was lucky. Her grandparents and her mother were refugees, but the family was financially successful. So she went to British and American schools in Jordan and then to Smith College in Massachusetts. But my senior year was probably unlike most. That's the year I applied for uh, political asylum. Uh, I'm gay. I knew that at a very young age and um, in Jordan and uh, parts of the Middle East, you can get the death penalty for being gay. So I knew that I would never be able to live my life in Jordan and uh, ended up uh, making the really hard decision to apply for asylum. I I lost my identity. I was no longer Jordanian. Um, I will end up losing my family, Um, but I had my freedom and I had I was going to be able to live and and live freely. And those are really hard decisions to make. Um, 
been really tough to make it at age 22. Did you consider yourself a refugee at that point? I mean, uh, technically I was. Um, you know, when you're forced to leave your country, uh, you know, for being persecuted or well-founded fear of persecution, that's, that's the definition. I didn't have a home. Um, so, yeah. But she knew her English skills and American college degree meant that her refugee experience was worlds away from the children she'd met at the camp in Jordan and from the teenage soccer players she would later meet in Atlanta when she made that wrong turn. After that first pickup game, Mufla found herself making excuses to leave the struggling cafe she ran and go play soccer. I asked kids if they wanted to form a team, and that was like the beginning of my um, education into how refugees and, and immigrants are, are treated in this country. They named their team the Fugees, short for refugees. And in their first season, the kids started asking Mufla for help with their homework. Initially, she told them to go ask their parents. But then she learned most of the kids' parents couldn't read or write in English or even in their own native languages. And so we'd sit on park benches trying to do homework, and I realized that the kids um, were being set up for failure. One story sticks out in my mind. One of my players, a B student, um, he had a good grasp of the English language, at least verbally. And he called over to me, he's like, hey, coach, can you help me with my homework? I have a headache. I was like, yeah, sure. And so I read to him, he answered me back. I wrote in the answers. Second day, same thing happens. Like, coach, I have a headache. I was like, okay. A little bit worried about him, but you know, we did it. And then the third day, he did the same thing, and I was like, I have a headache. And he's like, no, I have a headache. And luckily, I was more stubborn, and he looked up at me and said, Coach, I can't read. And it broke me. He was uh, 12 at the time, and he had been in the public school system for three years. It's not what I believed America was about. You know, you're not supposed to have kids in school that can't read or write change a few details about my story, about my experience, that could have been me. Mufla started looking into it and learned the school district had a newcomer program for refugees. But it only lasted a few months. And then, without any real English fluency, the kids were placed into a regular class with others their same age. Now, if a refugee is in kindergarten or first grade, he might have a chance of keeping up. But Mufla's soccer players were landing in middle school, unable to read or write. It's no wonder English language learners have the lowest graduation rate of any group of students in public high schools, more than 15 percentage points below the national average. And I asked myself, if this was my kid, what would I do? Um, I sent him to a school that could meet his needs. There wasn't a school out there. Um, I couldn't afford private school. So it was actually cheaper to start a school with one teacher and six kids and in a church basement. And that's literally what she did. This was 2006. Mufla and a couple of staff and some volunteers scrapped and scraped to get Fuji's Academy up and running. I've always believed if you do the right thing, the funding will follow. Uh, the money will come from somewhere. Um, you know, sometimes a, a car wash and other times, you know, a, a good grant. Because the students are not paying tuition. The students can't pay tuition. So it was a zero tuition private school. Over the next decade, Fuji's Academy would expand to two locations, one near Atlanta, one in Columbus, Ohio, with about 240 students in total. It attracted enough attention that Mufla was invited to give a TED Talk, which won her a standing ovation and lots of media coverage. Fuji's Academy continues to be a free, private school education for 6th through 12th grades, and it is only for refugee and immigrant children. They have to apply. We prioritize kids who speak a language other than English at home, kids who qualify for free and reduced lunch, and kids with the least amount of time in the country. Soccer is still a big uh, part of it. Every kid on, uh, in school plays on a soccer team. Um, Mandatory. Mandatory, yep. Why? <laughs> That's how we started. That was the hook for everyone, right? Like, soccer is this universal language. You can walk any part of the world and pick up a soccer ball and instantly have friends. So for us, it um, created a sense of belonging. Uh, the field is like our sacred space where it's familiar, it's healing, and then you're a part of a team. You know, you're part of a group of kids who have gone through what you've gone through, Maybe not the exact same conflicts, but 
similar and you're learning to play together and get along and feel like other people have your back when for so long um, you felt no one did. At first, the application to attend Fuji's Academy was just a soccer tryout. And it's not to see who's the most talented or most gifted. It's to see which kid is willing to push themselves to their limit. Um, because the work we are asking them to do is hard. We're asking them to make uh, six to eight years of academic gains in, in three years. Um, and so we want kids who, when they're um, confronted with something difficult, can power through it, can persevere through it. Um, and then we look for kids who show up on time every day, you know, even after we put them through like a really tough conditioning uh, tryout, they're showing up the next day. On the last day, we do a scrimmage and um, we look for the kids who take care of each other, who are not looking to put each other down because um, you're gonna need everybody around you to help you succeed. We did that for a number of years, and then, you know, I think word got out. It's like, if you survive tryouts, then you're going to get into the school. Um, and we started having more kids apply than we had spots. And so we uh, started administering an academic test. And I remember um, when we got a large influx of Syrian refugees, one of the moms was waiting outside the room for her son, you know, and he comes out and looks defeated. And she's like, how'd you do? How'd you do? And he's like, I didn't understand anything. I'm not going to get in. I was like, no, no, you're you're the one getting in. Like, this is for you. And he looked at me, he's like, but I did terribly. And I'm like, yeah, that's why you need to be here. And how are you teaching? I mean, if the goal is to try to get them up to, you know, they, they, they come to the school not being able to even speak any English or understand or write it. And you're hoping that within three years or so, you're going to get them up to performing close to their own grade level. Like, what is the magic? What are you doing? Um, it's year round. Classes are small. It's rigorous. It's not like, okay, well, you kind of know this. All right, we're done. No, it's like you have to know it before you move up, right? Um, it's having high expectations and holding everyone accountable to it. Um, and it's also the athletic approach. It's like, all right, you learned this, and that's awesome, and you did a great job today, but tomorrow we need to take it to the next level, right? So and when you say it's year-round, it, like literally year-round, there's no summer break? There's a short summer break. You know, we do a five-week uh, summer program hmm. for all our students. And how long it's is the school day? The school day, you know, August through uh, end of May is uh, starts at 8 and the kids leave at 5.30. And part of that is soccer practice in the afternoon? Soccer practice and after-school support in the afternoon. Oh, so um, they do their homework on-site as well. Yeah. Our goal is by the time you get home, you know, you eat, you shower, you're so tired. Maybe you'll read for about 30 minutes and then, then go to bed. And what happens if a student is failing their classes? Um, if they're failing their classes, they don't get to play in the game. You see a lot of uh, people rally around that, right? So, because you need all your team playing in order to win. Um, so you'll start seeing uh, teammates making sure the kid shows up to school or is doing their homework or participating in class. The coach checks in on them regularly. Hey, you know, do you have your grade up? Everybody's more invested in, in, in you passing, and it's not just all on you. The, the culture is one where everyone, everyone's aware if someone is struggling. Yeah, I mean, we um, do something that's uh, pretty unconventional. Uh, we read our report cards out loud, and so everyone knows where everyone stands. Part of that is if someone in your community is struggling, you need to know about it and you have a responsibility to help. And if you are the one struggling, you need to know that there are others in that room that are going to help you. They're not going to do the work for you, but they're going to help you. How does that report, you, you, you're in the room with the rest of the school and you're saying, I'm getting a C in English. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> I'm getting Just like that English C, math, B, art, F, you know, like, yeah. And what is the acceptable, like, response from, from the audience? Kids know when someone has improved. They'll notice if someone went from an F to a C. They shout each other out, you know, during the week. They're, like, saying that kids are working toward it. Um, it, it is motivation. Kids get vested in it. They don't want to be up there failing, right? So there is a little bit of that, right? Like, 
is it shameful? It's like, no, I don't want to fail because I don't want to let my teammate down, right? So I'm going to work hard for it. How were you thinking about this idea of like segregation versus integration, that you were creating a school specifically and only for immigrant and refugee children when so much of the, well, public school in America, especially since Brown versus Board of Education is very much about like, we don't do separate, but equal or separate, but better. We do integration. But we do segregate. Look at our schools. They're segregated by income. They're segregated by race. Um, And it happens, right? And so we're just saying we want what's best for our community. Um, And we want a place where our kids get to be surrounded by others like them, where they don't have to explain themselves or their families or their background, where that is celebrated and understood and have that kind of bubble environment so they feel confident and then are ready to integrate back in. Um, Because then that's when you have true integration is when you're at the same playing field. If you're not, it's segregation. So your goal, the goal of the Fuji's Academy then is to um, get these children performing up to their grade level so that they can transfer into a public or private school and not have to be failing or in special ed. Yeah, and, and some, I mean, our model is sixth through 12th grade. So we do have a uh, large number of kids that stay with us through their senior year um, because the public school districts in, in a lot of our neighborhoods are failing. When they leave us, they're enrolling in community college, they're doing apprenticeships, they're going to four-year colleges, and they're very confident in, in who they are and what they are capable of. What, what does success look like for you? Remember, Early on, I would ask the kids, what what is it that you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? Um, And a lot of the kids said, I I want to be able to take care of my family. I want to be able to take care of my mom. A lot of our our parents work manual labor, some of them in the meat processing plants. Um, And so the kids would say, okay, so if I want to do better, you know, it's like lawyer, doctor, engineer, right? And so we're like, no, 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 it's not just meat processing plant or lawyer, doctor, engineer, there's everything in between, right? And then being able to direct and advise uh, students and their families as to what the best options are. You know, we had a student in our program behind academically and she worked really hard, you know, during her middle school years. Um, family was illiterate for generations. Where, where was she from? Eritrea. You know, her mom was a teenage mom, and so was her grandmother. Um, And her junior year, um, uh, she got pregnant, and that was really hard. It was hard on her family, it was hard on her, but it's like, this is is the situation, right? So you can choose to give up on a kid or say, hey, this is not going to work out, or you need to um, figure something else out. But she stayed in school, graduated on time. Uh, her, her beautiful daughter actually jumped on the stage as, as she was giving the, the graduation speech. And, you know, she, she did end up working at, at the chicken processing plant. But because she had a high school education, she was actually managing her mom's group. And she's ambitious and undeterred. And I think of the determination it took for her to do that and to stick with it when maybe others around her were telling her, no, stay at home, take care of your kid, you don't need to go to school. So maybe not the most conventional definition of success, but one that that we hold, I hold very dear. Luma Mufla is the founder of Fuji's Academy. In 2022, the organization received a $10 million donation from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott, ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. That money will help Mufla and her team adapt the Fuji's model for school districts to incorporate into their newcomer programs for refugee children. It'll include mandatory soccer for all students, by the way. Mufla says that is non-negotiable. She recently wrote a book about all of this called Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. When refugees are resettled in America, they have their basic needs met initially. We were taken to our new home. Every room, there's enough furnishing, a huge fridge with stocked with food. But to find long-term success building a new life in America, 
Refugees need a deeper kind of welcome from the community. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. The decision to live your own home, everything you worked for it, your family, your friends, your neighbors, it's not an easy decision. This is Aidan Batar. I'm the director of Migration and Refugee Services for Catholic Community Services. Catholic Community Services is one of several nonprofits the United States government relies on to settle refugees. Batar helps hundreds of people fleeing war and violence establish themselves in Utah each year. Almost 30 years ago, he was one of them. It was 1994. Uh, we were among the first refugee uh, Somalis that were resettled in the state of Utah through Catholic Community Services. Originally, I'm from Somalia, and uh, in 1990, Somali Civil War broke. Batar was newly graduated from college at the time, married with a toddler. The young family fled to a relative's home in a slightly safer part of the city. A bunch of other families were also crowded into that home trying to survive. It was very chaotic, and uh, um, every day I would go to the market to look things to, to live. And one day I came back, um, my son he was running around, he was two years old, and uh, he, he was burned uh, with hot boiling water, you know, and um, I don't know how to describe that day, how my emotions and feelings, what I have seen. I witnessed my own son in my own eyes that he was burned all over his body. There was no hospital, there was no medication, medicine, no doctors, and uh, um, he only lived five days after he was burned. And um, if there was an effective hospital and you know medicine, he could have been saved. Uh, but that was all the time he had in this world, and. Uh, um, the day I buried my son, the next day I could not stay. So that's one of the reasons why we fled Somalia. We were so excited when um, we were told that uh, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program approved our application and that we're going to America, we're coming to Utah. We had a family member here in the state of Utah who was going to school at Utah State University, my brother-in-law. He's the one who sponsored us, the whole family. And uh, the first day at the airport when, you know, we came and there was so many people waiting us at the gate and uh, my brother-in-law and his family, uh, a lot of other people that I don't know who they were at the time and people that work for Catholic Community Services, uh, you know, that were welcoming us. Um, so it was very overwhelmingly when we have seen all those uh, strangers that we didn't know welcoming us. Then, then we were taken to our new home. We, we walked into the house. Yeah, I remember it was a four-bedroom house, and uh, every room, there was enough furnishing and, you know, a huge fridge with, stocked with food. We were overwhelmed. The exact level of support refugees receive when they arrive in the U.S. depends a lot on where they end up. But what Batar's family experienced back in the 90s is still pretty standard. Government funding and community donations set refugee families up with the basics. They're immediately eligible for social security cards and can apply for low-income programs like food stamps and Medicaid. Within six to eight months, they're expected to pretty much be on their feet and working. So I, I remember my first job is working in a production line and earning um, what back then, uh, you know, 425 was the minimum wage. <laughs> and uh, my rent was $500, the big house that we lived in. Um, but you know, we were a couple of us, myself and uh, some of uh, two of my brother-in-laws living with me at the time. We were all putting together our income and, and paying all the expenses. Batar worked a swing shift at that factory, making exercise equipment for two years while taking English classes at a local university during the daytime. He had a law degree from Somalia. But the, at the time, the universities were not equipped to deal someone coming from a refugee background to help them, um, you know, start where they left off. And, but I had to worry about my kids and my family to provide them. So that's why I took the first job. But the refugees who are coming today, 
if they have a college degree and they want to go back to their professional field, there are programs available for them from day one that we help them recertify their education. And if they are doctors, there are programs that would help them become a doctor. How did you end up getting involved then in the refugee resettlement? In 1996, there were a wave of Somali refugees that were coming to Utah. So Catholic Community Services contacted me and they offered me a job. Without any doubt, I accepted the job. I started as a case manager, helping the refugees uh, the same way that we were helped and also helping them with doing case management, employment and interpretation and everything that the refugees needed to start a new life. So that's how I get involved. In the years since, Batar says Utah has expanded the services it offers refugees. There's follow-up from a caseworker, language courses, career guidance, and so on. In most states, the period of intensive support from a caseworker lasts about six months. But in Utah, it's two years. Batar says that long-term commitment has helped establish a community of refugees in the state who are thriving, starting businesses, sending their kids to college, and creating cultural connections to help new refugees more quickly find their place. That's something that could have made a real difference for Batar's family arriving in Utah all those years ago. One of the things that immediately I noticed when I arrived was that there wasn't a place to go for shopping, <laughs> especially food. That you, your traditional foods that yeah, you were familiar halal with. food, what oh, we call halal, it, religiously okay. prepared food like kosher, mm-hmm. and, uh, and also a place of worship. When, when I moved in Salt Lake in 1996, there was only one mosque, a small mosque. But the, over the years, the community grew, and we have close to 10 mosques now in, youth, in Salt Lake area. Mm. Um, and the Muslim community, it's over 50,000 now in Utah. Um, so I think, uh, it, you know, uh, all this were built by the refugees and students and, you know, people that are coming to Utah to work. So, yeah, I think the refugees that are coming now, they have a community. Like if, if you're Somali, if you are Sudanese, if you are Congolese, you know, if, uh, if you are, you know, Afghani, there's a community that people will meet them and they don't have to worry about where to worship, where to, to buy food where to uh, socialize with people and so forth, because that makes a huge difference. Batar says when refugees are embraced with kindness and trust in a community, they're better able to put down roots and confidently express their own cultural identity, making the community more welcoming for those who come after them. You know, when you are new to a country and you don't have anyone, it is really hard. But when strangers coming to you and want to become friends with you, want to teach you the, the language, the culture, help you, you know, the, the transition will go very smoothly versus where some communities elsewhere in the United States where you go to a neighborhood and people telling you, go back where you came from. It is completely different. But Batar has noticed over the years that some refugee groups prompt a quicker, often more compassionate response from the public. The evacuation of the Afghanis, for example, that we just recently happened, the amount of support that the community that have responded was so overwhelmingly. The reason is being uh, because our soldiers were there and, uh, and, 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 and many of the veterans that are in our community and, and people who have family members who have served in, in Afghanistan and, and so forth, uh, you know, they, they had so uh, passion to help. The, the Afghan uh, refugees that have been coming and the, the amount of support that we have received, uh, it was very overwhelmingly. I wish that all the refugees that were coming to our community would have had that similar response. Like, for example, what we're seeing now right now in Ukraine, people are so, uh, you know, generous to help the Ukrainian refugees, uh, you know, when they arrive. Uh, but there's a lot of other refugees that have been forgotten uh, that have been coming over the years or their conflicts have been happening. Uh, for example, in Syria, Syrians have been going through exactly what the Ukrainians are going through right now. And yet with the Syrian refugee uh, crisis, um, we have not responded. 
Now, the basic government support we talked about earlier is there for any refugee who gets approved to resettle in America. But U.S. politicians have been uneven in their willingness to allocate additional resources or resettlement slots for refugees from Syria, Iraq, and other conflicts in the Middle East. Meanwhile, communities have been inclined to greet those refugees with fear that they might pose a threat to our own safety or religious beliefs. The media plays a major role as well. And because people are seeing the TV and radios and, you know, all kind of uh, media talking about the issues. If the issue is being talked about every day, people will be aware, people will get more information. But press coverage can backfire for refugees, too. Batar is frustrated that political rhetoric and media stories have created a disconnect in people's minds when they think about migrants arriving at the southern U.S. border seeking asylum. I think people are not well informed. What is the primary misconception that you think people have? People are coming to our communities, taking our jobs, they are criminals, and those are the misconceptions people always have, which is not the truth. Uh, a lot of the families that we're seeing at the southern border, they're escaping violence and inhumane conditions, and uh, um, they're not different than the refugees that we are bringing from uh, war zone countries. Aidan Batar is Director of Migration and Refugee Services for Catholic Community Services in Utah. Liz Yevchit Shomlai experienced that public rejection when she and her family fled the breakup of Yugoslavia. We came from the wrong side, I guess, of the conflict. Yevchit Shomlai was a teenager at the time. I was born and raised on the Serbian side. And, you know, everyone heard in the news about the Bosnia. And so the Bosnians were the good guys and the Serbs were the bad guys. So I was what I like to call the non-sexy refugee because I just, you know, I didn't fit the profile of the media. And no one listened to any of my story. So the fact that, you know, I was a teenager, that I lost my mother during the flight, that we were homeless, um, that I was an A student, very, you know, very educated. And and I came from a home that was very um, strong in activist and civil society engagement. None of that was important. My father is an educated accountant who speaks fluently three languages, yet in the country where we we were at, he was treated as a no one and people ridiculed him and he was not given any opportunities for anything because he was a Serb. Yevchit Shomlai's family resettled in Austria where they struggled with persecution and the lack of support. She came to the U.S. for college, got a Ph.D. in international conflict analysis in the U.K. She now lives in Arizona and works with a nonprofit called Their Story is Our Story, which collects and publishes the experiences of refugees in their own words. You know, as I started working with Their Story is Our Story, I realized that I wish I had someone at the time when I was a refugee um, have a desire to listen. It is very empowering to actually have the ability to tell your story the way you want it to be heard um, and not have someone else share it the way that they think it should be shared. And so what we provide is these people have story, they have identities, they're individuals, and they're beautiful, unique, intelligent human beings. And so what we offer to the table is sharing that individual narrative and giving them the power to share it in the way that they feel most comfortable with their story being shared. The other side of that, it is, it is an incredible advocacy tool. As we educate people by sharing these narratives, the personal narratives, people are more connected to them and they change their perception of what they thought of that label refugee. And with that, they change their action. And so we see an increased interest in participating, in helping. Um, you can see that, you know, across uh, many of the states in the United States, you see th- there's so much more individual effort to aid with the necessities such as, you know, food, clothing, um, helping with learning the language. It all starts with sharing of that personal individual story. Yevchit Shomlai says the next step community members can take in supporting refugees is to recognize the role the United States sometimes plays in conflicts that force people to flee. That might be through American economic interests, military intervention, or lack of intervention. If you don't want to have refugees coming into your country, 
be careful about how you conduct your politics with that country. Sometimes domestic politics and international politics looks at how do I better my own situation without looking at what cause and effect does that have on outside world. And so it is, in a way, it is our responsibility as well to be a little bit more careful about how we choose our political parties, um, how we choose, you know, places where we go and shop our clothes. Mm -hmm. It comes down to very simple things where we actually be have to be a little bit more conscientious of how does my action impact another human being. I have so many people coming to me and saying, well, what can I do? And the very first thing you can do is you actually can call your representative and you can speak to your representative and you can speak for these people. Um, and say what? Say, let's take more refugees? Say, hey, yes, we are able and we're capable. We can share. We have space. Let us take more in. Mm -hmm. We, I am willing, I'm willing to help them learn the language and help them get into the labor market. Simple as that. Um, and, and then the second one is the fact that we don't have to be afraid of a new person, of a newcomer. They come with different culture and they come with a different language. They eat food maybe that we are not used to, but that's the beauty of it. It's that diversity. Liz Yevchit Shomlai is a human rights researcher and associate director of Their Story is Our Story. You can read the refugee narratives they've collected online at tsosrefugees.org. The number of refugees accepted in the United States has dropped dramatically since the early 90s, when more than 100,000 people were resettled here each year. Just before the pandemic, that annual number had fallen to 30,000. The president sets a limit on how many refugees can come to America. President Trump cut the number each year he was in office. President Biden has raised it, but the actual number of refugees being admitted into the U.S. continues to drop. Whether you know it or not, there are probably refugees trying to build a new life in your community. To find out how you can help, search online for refugee resettlement in your state and reach out. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me and Bailey Johnson, with help from Cleon Wall and Ciara Hewitt. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski, Jerem Hansen, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you are enjoying Top of Mind, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That'll help others to find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>